Tonight's reading is from Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 23. Please follow along. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock, I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. <laughs> I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers... Nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servants. I formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. <laughs> All right, guys, let's pray. <laughs>
My work here is done. <laughs> oh man, nothing like a little round of applause to begin. <laughs> All right. Hey everyone, welcome to RUF, Reform University Fellowship. We doing okay? Yeah, overall? Uh, it's been nice overall, weather-wise, a little bit. Recently got cold again, but we can't win them all. Okay, so my name is Sid Drew, and I'm the campus minister with RUF, Reform University Fellowship. Uh, it's a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve this campus, but also you all, uh, wherever and however you are, and we mean that um, in every possible way. Uh, we mean that in terms of um, we don't want to just represent one kind of person. Um, we want to represent every kind of person at Davidson. And we want to represent anyone with any personal background should feel like they can be here. We want to be a place where anyone um, from any social scene can feel free to be here. And so we hope you feel welcomed. And we even mean that spiritually. If you're not sure exactly where you are with Jesus or with Christianity, um, or you're very sure, we're glad you're here. And we really do hope you feel um, like your presence um, is important to us. So thanks again for coming, especially if you're new, thanks for coming. We really appreciate you being here. Um, and also just, um, I'd love to meet you if I don't know you. Um, so let's make an effort next to LaCroix and we can talk. Um, or also Maddie and Eric, would you raise your hands? These are our two interns, our two interns. And they're here to, to also meet you. And there's a lot of other students that would love to get to know you too. So if you can, um, I would love um, for that time to happen. So anyway, this semester in large group, we've been looking at um, the book of Isaiah, which is in the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of the Bible, and we've been looking at the topic of who is God. Am I in the... Is it... Okay. Am I in this? Okay, no. Okay. I had that happen one time, and like words were across my forehead. It was very... Anyway. Okay. It was very Jesus-y. Okay. Um... <laughs> As a reminder, uh, we've been studying Isaiah, as I said, and I'm going to give you two reasons why we're looking at that and who the topic of who God is. I think Isaiah's, first of all, Isaiah's visions of God are to quote author Jen Wilkin, uh, like no other. Isaiah's prophecies show and tell us about God so vividly that they drive us to ask a very helpful question. Are we actually really sure we know who God is? Are we sure we know who God is? And second, um, this series comes out of my year. Um, honestly, it's been a lot. So, for instance, um, a lot of you know this, but I had a summer filled with eye cancer and radiation. And that was a time when I didn't know um, what God was doing, and I had to reach for who God is. And so that's sort of this idea, and I think in Christianity and in the Bible, that's a transferable idea. That all of us, no matter where we are, will face difficulties in life, intense bouts of suffering, a joy that feels too good to be true, or even just a prolonged boredom. And we, in those moments, can trace who God is at a character heart level. And that's kind of what Isaiah is helping us to do. And we've seen this so far in Isaiah. He's helped us see that God is big and near, that God is holy, that God is trustworthy, that God is the object of our hope. So what we've been doing the past few weeks, God is patient. God is powerful, God is gentle, and then last week we saw God is happy. And this week we're going to look uh, tonight at Isaiah chapter 44, which Jackson just read for us, and we're going to look at God is sovereignly free. He's sovereignly free. All right, before we look more at this, I'm going to pray, and we'll get started. 
Father, thank you for this time that we get to share together. Thank you um, for these students and their attention. Um, I don't take that lightly. And I pray uh, that you would show up as you've showed up in this room uh, so many times before. Um, I pray that you would meet us where we are, whether we feel like we're running, whether we feel like um, we're just stagnant, whether we feel like we're drawing close to you or creeping away. Um, I pray, Jesus, that you'd meet us uh, with your words to us and that you would um, be high and lifted up, Jesus, in the midst of this, and that you'd be more beautiful and believable to the eyes of our hearts, and that you just really wouldn't let us leave this room the same, um, that you would really help us to, to know you more, um, even through this passage that, that maybe feels very old to some of us here. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to move out of that light. Okay. So um, on, de- on December 21st, 1988, an airplane, Pan Am Flight 103, took off from London, England, and it didn't actually make it to its destination in New York City. 38 minutes after takeoff, 31,000 feet above Lockerbie, Scotland, a bomb hidden in a Samsonite suitcase exploded inside the airplane and killed all 259 passengers and crew and as well as 11 people on the ground underneath the airplane. In a newspaper article that happened several years later, a woman told the story of praying for her husband and the safety on that air flight that she prayed the night before he took off on that very flight, Pan Am 103. Her husband, like every other passenger, died in the explosion four days before Christmas. The article went on to describe how the Pam Am bombing and the loss of her husband affected this widow's view of God. In a burst of honesty, she said this, I don't dislike God. I'm not mad at him. I'm afraid of him. I don't dislike God. I'm not mad at him. I'm afraid of him. That's uncomfortable. (laughs) As uncomfortable as that is, I want us to sit with that woman's honest view of God for a minute. I want to look at fear. Fear that isn't disgust and fear that isn't anger. If she had been pressed, I wonder if that widow of the Pan Am bombing wouldn't have gone on to say she's afraid of God's freedom to do what he pleases. Even when it's extremely unpleasing and even rightfully upsetting to all of us in this room. I wonder if that woman interviewed is getting at the feeling we we all harbor about our best and most earnest prayers that go unanswered. God is free to answer or not answer our prayers. And this makes us afraid to ask God for what we really want. And this makes others Some of us are afraid to ask for what we want. It makes others of us actually just hurt or frustrated and doubtful. Doubtful that God cares. Doubtful that he can win over a world that is filled with terrorists that kill innocent travelers. And look, maybe you've been there. Maybe you are there. Maybe this is just future tense filed away for a harder time. That's okay. But the spiritual life, even the Christian life, can feel like a cruel knock-knock joke that my second graders are fond of. Ready? Knock, knock. Who's there? Thank you. (laughs) Nobody. 
Okay? So those insulted by that second grade joke, okay, which can sometimes feel like prayer, right? Knock, knock, nothing. Those of you insulted by second grade humor, the poet Emily Dickinson writes this. Of course I prayed. And did God care? He cared as much as on the air a bird had stamped her foot and cried, give me more. Isaiah chapter 44 is written to those who feel or have felt trapped in a Dickinson poem. Those who have feel or have felt trapped in a second grade knock-knock joke. <laughs> Isaiah's original audience, you have to understand, the ancient Israelites had been frog-marched at spear point and in chains across the Middle East to Babylon, where they felt forgotten and enforced exile. And in the face of God's fierce freedom, they turned to more controllable gods. Gods they could hold in their hand and make wishes that were guaranteed to come true. But according to verse 20, these objects of worship, these means to take control, whether they're ancient Near Eastern or 21st century, American, these objects meant to take control of our lives only end up controlling our lives. But God breaks down the silence and he responds to our feelings of abandonment through the very words that we're given tonight. Through Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 23. In the passage, Isaiah's t- uh, sorry, God through Isaiah tells us and then shows us that God is sovereignly free. He is sovereignly free and uses that freedom to seek us where we hide. And he uses that freedom to redeem or ransom, that's what it means, us from spiritual slavery. So God is sovereignly free and he uses the freedom to seek us out where we hide. And he uses that freedom to redeem or pay the ransom for us out of spiritual slavery. Along these lines, God's self-description in Isaiah 44 anticipates three questions which are on your handout with verses. So I'm going to speed through them. Who is God is the broad question. Or what does it mean that God is absolutely free is the specific question. That's in verses 6 through 8. In verses 9 through 20, who are we? Or the more specific question, how do we often handle God's freedom? And third, in verses 21 through 23, where do we go from here? Or how does God and his freedom respond to us as we are? And how do we, in our worship, respond to God as he is? And again, those those questions are on your handout. And we're going to begin, shocker, with the beginning. And we're going to look first at verses 6 through 8. And that question that's actually kind of haunting, given what we just talked about. Who is God? Who is God? If you look with me at verse 6, Isaiah tells us exactly who God is. And Isaiah even directly quotes God telling us exactly who God is. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. According to Isaiah, God is a sovereign ruler. Look at the language he uses to describe God. Lord, not once, but twice. And then Lord of hosts, which means Lord of angel armies, armies of heavenly beings. That's what Lord of hosts means. Not like he's a good server of guests. Okay, That's what I thought in college for a while. Anyway, uh, God is also described as a king the king of Israel, the king of his people that he's addressing through his words. And God is also called a redeemer. And this is a word that we're going to circle back to and define later in greater detail 
when we discuss verses 21 through 23. So then this Lord, King, Lord, speaks to us and he tells us, I am the first. What does that mean? God does not derive his life or his being from anything or anyone else. He is self-existent. He's not made. He's not created. He's eternal. And then God underlines the eternality of who he is by saying, I'm the last. God is going to outlast everything. He will remain supreme and totally fulfilled throughout and long after space and time cease to exist. What verse 6 is getting at is that God is not just all-knowing and he's not just all-powerful. God is also absolutely free. And this is how A.W. Tozer puts it. He, God, must be free to do whatever he wills to do at any time to carry out his eternal purpose and every single detail without interference. Were he less than free, he must be less than sovereign. According to Christian theologians like A.W. Tozer, God's freedom is unlike everything else that we are acquainted with on this planet. This planet, everything, each natural object is dependent on many other objects, and that dependence limits their freedom. This is a philosophical fancy term called contingency. If you really if you want to look that up, I'm not going to define it. It just means you're limited and you're dependent. Okay? And so as we just read in verse 6, God does not fall into that category. He's not dependent on anything or anyone. He's the first and he's the last. Or as the book of Revelation says, he's the alpha, first letter of the Greek alphabet, and the omega, last letter of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end. Tozer presses into this unique freedom of God by suggesting that we actually misunderstand our own sense of freedom by, uh, and that we're very, actually very dependent and very limited, even though we don't feel that way sometimes. And he does, he does a really interesting thing with this expression, free as a bird. You know, you said that, or you've heard maybe your parents say that, or grandparents even. Uh, free as a bird. I'm free as a bird. And he sort of says, well, that's actually a weird thing to say, that we're free as a bird. Because birds aren't actually all that free. They live or die based on weather patterns, food supply, territories, migration, uh, formations, and equally sort of, quote-unquote, free predators. And as I quoted earlier, even if you gave a bird a voice, that bird would stamp its foot and cry, give me, if it could. Because it doesn't feel free, it has a need to be given to. And we're limited and dependent like that bird. We're always crying out, give me. We're crying out, give me when we're little, to our parents. And then as we get older, we're crying out, give me to my professors, give me to my employers, and give me to food service representatives in the industry so I can actually eat. Okay. But God also suggests in his uniqueness is not just a freedom from need, which is actually a pretty interesting sidebar. I know some of you are glazing over. But God asks, who is like me? Because in verses 7 through 8, he says he freely knows and controls all history. God sees and directs what happened, what's happening, and what will happen. And not just to you or me or in this room right here right now, to all things and all people forever. God knows and has declared what is to come to his people through prophets like Isaiah. And that should give the ancient Israelites and us the sense of comfort in the midst of our fears. That's why he says, do not be afraid. I'm going to illustrate this about like God's knowledge and his control of the future uh, and how that like is meant to be a rock of refuge for us. 
I'm going to illustrate it in a kind of weird way. For the last few years, I've been reading out loud to my children. <laughs> um, we've been started with the Chronicles of Narnia, and we worked through those, and now we're in Harry Potter. We're in the second book. Um, and we don't do this every night. And I, before, you might have visions in your head of like a fireside chat with me kind of droning on and on like this, maybe. And the little kid's eyes just sort of getting swollen and tired and sleepiness is closing them down. Uh, but actually, it's a much more interactive process with little kids when you read out loud to them, at least mine. Um, there are a lot of pauses for Q&A, a lot of talk back. Um, they will stop me and say, hey, daddy, what's happening? Or, hey, daddy, is that funny? Um, sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. And often I have one particular child, which I'm just going to name, Carol, um, who's most anxious and also the most engaged because she's the most anxious listener. And she's going to constantly stop me and ask what's going to happen. So look, I'm a dad, and I try not to spoil the new, the future, the plot twists. But, you know, when reading Chronicles of Narnia, I had just recently read it, and I, and I saw them, like, especially Carol, leaning over on the couch, leaning into the book literally, getting into the characters, thinking about it, her eyes getting huge, and she starts to get trembly all over because she's so nervous and excited and scared. And she asks, what's going to happen, Daddy? And I heard that fear, and so I'd tell her a little bit about what's to come. But I haven't read Harry Potter, and so when they ask me, and they get really big eyes, my twins in particular, and they start trembling all over, I can't answer that question. (laughs) And here's the thing. God has read and even written what is to come for us. Okay? And so when we're at our most wide-eyed and trembly all over, God has given us the future parts of the story of the world. And like a good father, he doesn't want to ruin the story and all the plot twists for us, but he's told us the future of this world, and he's told us our futures in very general terms, all so that we can be calmed in our fears. God has told us that he, like Aslan or Harry Potter, is going to win. He's going to save the day again and again and again. And he has given us details that make that ending make sense to our little hearts and our little minds. But, of course, this combination of everyday neediness, this inability to read and write the future can feel so anxiety-producing for us, if we're honest. In our anxiety, God's silence or his general answers to the questions of the what-ifs that are constantly popping up in our heart and minds, those specific what-if questions that he answers very generally, that can lead us to try and find something or someone else. Whether you call yourself a Christian or not, or religious or no way, we're always, all of us, looking for that person and that place or that thing that promises us complete independence. We're looking for that person, place, or thing that promises us control of our own future. Absolute sovereign control of our own future. And that's what verses 9 through 20, our second point, are getting at. These verses are telling us who we are and that we often handle God's freedom through this thing the Bible calls idolatry. When we read Isaiah's in-depth description of how an idol works and how it's made and how it's worshipped that we heard earlier, we're actually supposed to think that's absurd. And dare I say it, I'll use the S word, stupid. Okay, it's stupid as well, okay? I know that's not the real S word. Okay, (laughs) not only does, you're like, 
man, is he just... Anyway. Um, not only does Isaiah... Recover, recover. Not only does Isaiah tell himself or tell us that idolatry and idol makers are nothing or do not profit, he also shows us this by describing the way that they're made. Okay. What is supposed to be worshipped as a god isn't actually free. It relies on human craftsmanship. A person who gets tired and needs water and food. We see that in verses 10 through 13. What's supposed to be worshipped as a god isn't free. It relies on a tree, which in turn relies on a seed planted and the rain's nourishment. We see that in verse 14. Finally, what is supposed to be worshipped as a god isn't free. It relies on human decisions to not use it for warmth or cooking that night. And we see that in verses 15 through 16. And Isaiah really wants us to do the math and round our numbers and carry the twos and threes. If if what's supposed to be a God depends on these people and things that aren't free like God, maybe, just maybe, that statue isn't actually a God. Or can it, that statue, that idol, deliver us from anything if it can't deliver itself from the forest, if it can't deliver itself from the fireplace without an awful lot of human help? That's Isaiah's point. And at this point, most of you are like, yes, I agree. (laughs) I'm I'm probably not going to fall down and worship a statue. Most of us in this room would kind of feel that way. But what does this have to do with my anxiety, Sid? (laughs) What does this have to do with my anxiety? Look, you might believe in God, um, but not in a deliver me any and like a deliver me kind of way. Believing in God, right? So I'm going to speak to you that have problems with worshiping anything. Okay, so some of you are like the problem is this idea of God, and maybe I believe in a God, but I don't believe you fall down to worship Him. I don't believe you worship something or something or someone. And I'm just going to say like whether you're Christian again or not, whether you're religious or no way, we all worship something or someone. We just do. And oftentimes it's more than one something or some, someone. How or why? I actually just don't think we broadly define the word God well enough. So I'm going to more broadly define it. I'm going to use Martin Luther to do this. Martin Luther famously defined God broadly. He said this, A God is that to which we look for all good and in which we find refuge in every time of need. That to which your heart clings and it trusts itself is, I say, really your God. All of us look for good. All of us find refuge in someone or something. All of our hearts cling and entrust themselves to something or someone. This could be many things at one time. This thing could change by the day. And that's really the point for those of us who'd say we believe in the God of the Bible too. Our hearts, my heart, is constantly clinging to the same or to different idols. One or many. And I really appreciate the way that Tim Keller points out that idols can be a good thing that you deify. You idealize it. You take that good thing, you blow it out of proportion. You make it a requirement for being happy. Like, and here's where usually you'll get a list of things that are possible idolatry categories. Like, say, work, grades, alcohol, friendship, exercise, sex, food, etc. Okay? Um, and I said I'd like us to identify our own very much more specific idols with a few penetrating, I hope, questions. Ready? 
Here are my questions. What do you want more than anything else? What consumes your thought life? Or what consumes your bank statement or your outlook calendar? Complete this sentence for me. I will only be happy if blank. I will only be happy when blank happens. What would be the end of the world if it happened? What would you rather die than live without? What do you fear losing? What makes you angry if you can't have it? What makes you feel shame or guilt when you fail to get it? That can be a frustrating exercise. Maybe some of you are struggling to think of one thing or many things. Or it's a real shock. You all of a sudden realize that thing that you thought was really a good thing has become a thing that is owning your heart. And idols, uh, and that's because idols operate at a heart and identity level that's below our conscious thought level. And idols get their seductive power in an indirect way. They're nestled in what sociologists call a plausibility structure. A people and a place. This is what a plausibility structure is. That's a very fancy thing. A people and a place are often directing you, directing me, without using so many words. They're directing our worship towards what will make us happy or what is good or what's worth clinging to or trusting in. And yet this specific pushed vision is something that we oftentimes call common sense. That's what's so seductive. Let me pick on Davidson College. Can I do that? Oh, sure. Uh, It's a people and a place I love. I went here. I work here. I will always hold my own honor deep in my heart. Okay? Here's how Davidson College works. Not in so many words, or by any actual person, we're told to be game changers. Okay? We have signs on lampposts all around campus that tell us what game changers look like and the things that they say and value. Those are called saints, anyway. Not in so many words by anyone else, we're told to be busier and work harder. Here's what that looks like. The laundry service that used to, to, to help students was shut down and the money that was saved was immediately put to use by keeping Little Library open 24 hours, seven days a week. How does that not tell you to work harder and be busier? (laughs) And not so many words. We're told if you can finish the 12-hour take-home tests, pull the all-nighters, balance the diverse extracurriculars, and be, at the same time, somehow, relentlessly optimistic. (laughs) Our future dreams, our success is guaranteed. Look, in all love for Davidson College, Let me save you a quarter-life crisis. If you buy into everything that Davidson unwittingly promises, I don't think it's a conspiracy, okay, you will end up like verse 20, feeding on ashes with a deluded heart and trapped by a lie that leads you on. True success will never be in hand. True success will always be inches 
from your straining right hand's grasp. As verse 20 suggests, we can easily get enslaved to false promises and to false gods. Uh, Just again, if you do this, say, for four years, you will definitely get that, say, for a lifetime. We think a relationship or a GPA can make us self-sufficient or at least less needy for friends and family. We think an internship or a personal trait can help us be able to know and control more of our future. And so we plunge into anxiety about school or the group me or the resume or the eating. But these false gods make us more anxious and they just, the demands just get higher and higher and higher and higher. And so we get to the question of our third point in verses 21 through 23. Where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? And I'm going to start with where I think the scripture starts. How does God respond to us as we are? How does God respond to us trapped in our idolatries? In verses 21 and 22, God is emphatic. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. God knows where we are. He knows what I've gotten myself into yet again. He sees the way that I feel weak and needy and uncertain and anxious. And God also sees the ways that those feelings have driven me to find answers in a God I thought I could control that was built to please me, but became impossible to please. And this passage is like God bending low, gently cupping my face between his hands and saying, Sid, I know you. I know where you've been. I know where you're off to. I see the ways you're building an identity and seeking your happiness with another. And I won't forget you. We expect God to say, don't forget about me. Another thing up for us to do. But God says, I won't forget you. Yet another thing depends on God for us to rest in, not for us to do more of. And look what else he says. I have redeemed you. That is, I've sent my son, Jesus, as a ransom. He is your substitute. I sent him as a servant to serve in your place. I sent him as a blood price to get back your life. Like the sun's heat on a cool mist, God has pushed aside. He's evaporated all the shallow self-serving things we do to get what we want and all those things that we do when we don't get what we want. The ransom price is paid a little less than 2,000 years ago on a cross outside of Jerusalem. But how do we respond to God using his freedom like this to take on all of our needs and all of our burdens and all of our debts as if they were his own because we are his own? How do we respond? According to verses 21, 22, and 23, we remember, verse 21, remember who we are, losing and loved, and who God is, free and forgetless. We return, verse 22, return to God, the only one who unabashedly blots out, and we sing, verse 23, for God has done it. Jesus' death and his resurrection have done what we cannot do on our own. God's love has made us free and makes us free. 
free to delight in, free to wander at what's freely given. Free to be weak and needy. And to know that what's given can never be lost, no matter what our future is. Because what's given is Jesus. That's what we're given. And really, that's the answer to our unanswered prayers. Jesus. In the novel, Till We Have Faces, the main character feels like the widow of the Pan Am Flight 103. And perhaps some of us in this room, um, maybe she feels like this to us. We're too afraid to pray, honestly, or at all. But this main character in this book prays. And C.S. Lewis, the author of Till We Have Faces, encourages us through this character to become real. And this is what the title means, to, be, to develop a face before God by speaking in our own voice, our actual desires to God. Instead of running to an idol, instead of running to that thing or person we think is going to fix it, take a deep breath and be still with God. Ask him about what's to come. Confess your fears about missing out on a future vocational opportunity. Tell him you're frustrated with feeling so weak and feeling so needy and God feeling so absent. And here's the promise of the Bible. God will give you all you need. God will give you himself. <laughs> Listen to the way that Lewis puts it at the end of Tilia Faces. I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You yourself are the answer. Before your face questions die away, what other answer would suffice? Look, I don't know why God isn't giving you what you want. But I do know that it isn't because he doesn't see and he doesn't care. God sent his son Jesus to enter into our suffering and die. It can't be because he doesn't see and he doesn't care. I don't know why it often doesn't feel like God's present when I pray. But I do know that he's here and he's blotting me. Jesus conquered sin and he conquered death in his resurrection. And this means the dawn is chipping away at the present darkness. Look, I'm really hesitant to almost share this, but I will. This is what cancer taught me. One thing, not the only thing. And just so you can hear it from someone who's done that and been there in extreme pain in the dark. What I learned waiting on scans which would tell me whether the melanoma had spread and I was dead or whether I was alive. Here's what I want you to learn. Here's what I want you to hear from me. What I needed then and what I need now is the same. Jesus. Jesus. Did you pray with me? Father, um, thank you for giving us a gift we can't lose, a gift we can't earn, a gift that sometimes we spurn. Thank you that you relentlessly won't forget us. Thank you for meeting us in the hardest of places when it feels like you're the most silent. And I pray uh, for these students and I pray for me that in the midst of what feels 
so hard or maybe feels so not hard um, that you would meet us and you give us Jesus. You give us your son that we would know him and that we would know what, how he loves us, how he chases after us in the dark, and how he ransoms us. Thank you for the ways that your love sets us free. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.